brightest day and blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's life. Welcome to Now Playing's Listener's Choice Review of Green Lantern. Welcome to our Join Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob as they shine some light on the Emerald Knight's theatrical debut. If there's anything you can do that they can't do better, faster, and without disappointing women everywhere. This podcast will contain spoilers and may have mild language. Listener discretion is advised. For this moment that we were created, that I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Now let's get these pants off and fly some planes. Today, because you demanded it, we're discussing Green Lantern, starring Ryan Reynolds, Blake Lively, Clancy Brown, Mark Strong, and Peter Sarsgaard, directed by Martin Campbell. I'm Arnie, your willful host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A., and I'm perfectly willing to talk about Super 8. If anyone wants to change their mind, I'm accepting (laughs) last-minute votes. (laughs) In brightest day, in blackest night, no plot hole shall escape our sight. Let those who worship bad movies might beware our power now playing's light. This is now playing Lantern Jacob of Sector 1536. <laughs> nice. Nice. I'll take that oath and add that Green Lantern shite. But anyway. <laughs> well, as I mentioned, this was the Listener Vote Podcast. We were going to do a bonus podcast thanks to all the donations we got for the Poltergeist Jaws retrospective series. And this is the first Final Destination coming later in the summer. But we let the listeners vote between Super 8 and Green Lantern. Super 8 held an early, although slight lead, and Green Lantern pulled it out in the end. Yeah, I want to just clarify. We originally were going to do Green Lantern, no vote or not. You know, we look at summer schedules way ahead of time, and I actually of my own volition said i think we ought to do that until the trailer came out (laughs) and then i was like we cannot do that but of course i was set in stone this is our summer of super right so yeah we had to do it yeah exactly and i was like we're already doing superheroes i don't know why we would do another one particularly that one and so the idea of coming up with a vote was my compromise i'm like if the people tell me this is what they want to see i'll go with it but i really think this is a mistake In other words, it was your attempt to back out. (laughs) (laughs) It was, definitely. And so, because Stuart didn't like a trailer, Jason spent hours programming a vote page. (laughs) 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 Hundreds and hundreds of listeners voted. And sure enough, because I think listeners realized what I realized, just because it's a good movie doesn't mean it's a good review. They were voting what they wanted us to review, not what they wanted to see. Uh, So you're saying our viewers don't really like us very much. They think it's funny when we're in pain. Okay. Dance, fucker, dance. Uh, Well, we danced. I danced Thursday night at the midnight showing in downtown LA with a huge crowd of people wearing Green Lantern shirts, green socks, green everything. And these weren't just the stereotypical comic book nerd, whatever. Like, these were big, muscular dudes that in their day, like, lift weights, take steroids, and beat up people. And they were all primed, jumping up and down for Green Lantern. I also went to not quite a midnight showing. I was planning on going to a midnight showing. It was sold out. 
So I was going to go to the 1201 showing. That was sold out. So, okay, I'll go see the 1201 and 3D showing. That was sold out. So I ended up going to the 1220 showing, which also ended up selling out. And much like you, Stuart, a lot of fans in this audience. And the reason I decided to go to a midnight showing, you get the more hardcore fans. I felt like I had a lot of bias going into this film because I have not been impressed by the trailers. That I wanted to have a more positive audience experience. And if you're going to get that, you're going to get it with the hardcore fans at midnight showing. And, you know, I almost felt like I was at Comic-Con. People before the show started sitting around talking about the comics. A few people in full Green Lantern gear. Lots of people in the different Green Lantern or Yellow Lantern or whatever color Lantern shirts. So a lot of fans was a pumped crowd. I went to a 7 o'clock Friday night showing and... It was about two-thirds full. I was surprised at how many people were lined up beforehand and how many of them had Green Lantern shirts on, including my partner for the evening. This is the first movie in the history of Now Playing that Marjorie went, I ain't going to that, even if it does have Ryan Reynolds. Whoa! (laughs) Didn't she cart around a pillow with his face in the Green Lantern outfit all of last Comic-Con? Well, that's because she stole it, but yes. That was more a prize than it is. I didn't know Ryan could make a movie she wouldn't see. Neither did I, but she was like, I don't like 3D, it gives me headaches, this movie looks like shit. (laughs) So she made me go to the person who she bequeathed that pillow to, our friend Ryan, who is just a huge Green Lantern fan, went wearing a Green Lantern shirt... And was there to fill me in after the fact on all the myriad of ways it mirrored and differed from the comic books. Did you see it in 3D? Because I did. I saw it in 3D. 2D for me. And there were still customers? I would think the customers would go all out and have the 3D polarizing lenses built into the masks. All these shows were sold out. This is what the late cosplayers had to go see was the 2D version. Well... I was disappointed there was nobody there cosplaying. Lots of Green Lantern shirts, though. I was actually surprised at how ardent the Green Lantern fans were out in full force. But, you know, while there were your stereotypical comic book people there, also, I did notice a cluster of three girls dressed up in their best clubbing outfits, very scantily clad, all sitting together in the front. I'm thinking they were there for the Ryan Reynolds part. They did not look like Green Lantern fans to me. <laughs> well, I was wondering if th- this is what DC was going for, because I really feel that this was DC's Iron Man. And what I mean by that, I know we haven't got to the Iron Man movies yet, but Iron Man, Marvel took this B-list character, not a whole lot of people in the public knew who Iron Man was, got a very suave actor to play him with a lot of sex appeal, a lot of swagger, and they made a successful superhero movie for men and for the women because of that lead. And I feel that DC was hoping to get that same magic here with Green Lantern. Cast a a male lead with a lot of sex appeal to bring in the teenage girls, the, the younger ladies, and also have a fun science fiction flick for the guys. Whether they pulled off that, we'll get into that. I'll have to second that. As the non-comic book person, I have seen both Iron Man films in theaters. They convinced me to go even though it wasn't my thing. And I agree, this movie is in sheer emulation of Iron Man. Three for three on that. My notes are full of just like Iron Man. Just like Iron Man. Trying to be like Iron Man. So I'm sure that this is something that we will revisit again and again as we go through this. Well, let's go through it, Arnie. You got the plot, right? Does anyone have the plot, really? (laughs) (laughs) 
I did my best. I don't think Martin Campbell had the plot. I'm pretty sure pages kept coming in even after they were done filming. Well, as described in an opening voiceover, billions of years ago, a group of immortal beings called the Guardians of the Universe harnessed the power of will, which is green energy, apparently, into power rings. They made 3,600 of these power rings and divided the universe into 3,600 sectors and designated a ringed protector for each sector. I feel like there should be wind chimes and new age woodwinds <laughs> blowing behind you as you talk. Keep going. This is good. Maybe I'll put that in in post. <laughs> Maybe some pan flutes, a little Zamfir. Zamfir. I, I gotta admit, I had flashbacks of the exposition from the Dune film during this opening scene. <laughs> go on, go on. I'll try to stay awake. So each of these 3,600 protectors are a member of the Green Lantern Corps. However, over the billions of years, the Guardians realized willpower is not enough. So they sought to harness an even greater power, the yellow power of fear. One of the Guardians attempted to control fear, but the power overtook him and he became a powerful entity known as Parallax. And Parallax was seemingly unstoppable until one of the Green Lanterns, a purple alien named Abin Sur, voiced by Django Fett himself, Tamura Morrison, trapped Parallax on the planet Riot. But when the movie opens, three Green Lanterns are on Riot, I don't know why, and they come upon the imprisoned Parallax, who feeds on their fear, killing them and setting him free. Wait, Arnie, did you say three Green Lanterns crash? Yeah. Yes. Were they Green Lanterns? Well, we can discuss that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we could get into that then, I guess. We'll keep it in the spot somewhere. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Parallax then hunts Abin Sur, mortally wounding the lantern, but Abin is able to escape to Earth, where he tasks the ring to choose a replacement for him in the Green Lantern Corps. And in the history of the Corps, there has never been a human, but who the ring selects to be the very first is Lothario hotshot test pilot Hal Jordan, played by Ryan Reynolds. Jordan is a tremendous pilot, but freezes with thoughts of his father, who was also a test pilot who died on one such flight. Now a Green Lantern, Hal is taken to the Lantern's home planet of Oa. How you get two <laughs> syllables out of two letters, I don't know, but it's Oa. Where alien lanterns Tomar Ree, Kilowag, and Sinestro all try to train Reynolds in his new powers, which include flight, super strength, and the ability to use his ring to create anything he can imagine made of green energy. However, his constructs are only as strong as his will, and after some harsh words from Sinestro, Hal returns to Earth dejected. But on Earth, Abin Sur's body was found by the government and a secret government organization headed by Dr. Amanda Waller, played by Angela Bassett, recruits college professor and xenobiologist Hector Hammond, played by Peter Sarsgaard, to examine the body. During the autopsy, a bit of parallax in Abin Sur's wound infects Hammond and he becomes physically deformed and given the powers of telepathy and telekinesis. Hammond uses this power to try to kill his father, Senator Robert Hammond, played by Tim Robbins, who both helps fund Ferris Aircraft, the company where Hal works, and whose connections got his son the job of examining the alien. But Hal as the Green Lantern repeatedly interferes, and Hector Hammond's wail of agony in the fight summons Parallax, who realizes Hal wears the ring of Abin Sur. So Parallax decides to eat Earth as further punishment for Abin Sur's imprisonment of him, and with the energy he gets from Earth, he will be strong enough to then go defeat the Guardians. The Guardians, meanwhile, are trying to determine how to deal with Parallax, and Sinestro leads a group of the Corps against Parallax and is handily defeated, so Sinestro and the Guardians commission the creation of a yellow ring, which they can then use to fight Parallax. But Hal goes to the Guardians and gives an impassioned speech for the Corps to save Earth, but the Guardians refuse, so Hal goes off to fight Parallax alone. 
Parallax arrives on Earth, killing Hector Hammond and hundreds of others before Hal lures him into space, and repeating his test flight maneuver from the start of the film, Hal flies right towards the sun, chased by Parallax. They go too close and Parallax is pulled into the sun's gravity. Hal also seems trapped until Sinestro, Tomari, and Kilowag arrive to save Hal's life. Now a hero of the Green Lantern Corps, Hal has overcome his self-doubt and devoted himself to former Flame and Ferris Aircraft VP Carol Ferris, played by Blake Lively. But halfway through the credits, we see Sinestro don the yellow ring. His outfit turns yellow and his eyes turn evil as we set up the sequel and the rest of the credits roll. So there we have it, guys. Green Lantern. Okay, well, you know, as the comic book newbie, I always am curious when we have these new characters. Why did Warner Brothers invest $300 million into Green Lantern? Jacob, can you tell me anything about this character? Because as far as I knew about Green Lantern, I saw a few episodes of Super Friends as a kid. I knew he had a magical ring. I didn't know he flew to outer space, and I thought he was black. Well, depending on the version of the Green Lantern you saw, there is an African-American one. There's been a few different human Green Lanterns. What's interesting about this character, and I think what attributes to his popularity with the comic books, is that the original version of the Green Lantern in the 40s, it was about this train engineer who finds a magic lamp, and he makes a ring using the magic from the lamp. It was very magic-based. What happened after World War II is superheroes really declined in popularity in comic books, so a lot of these characters went away, and D in the late 50s said, hey, let's try to reinvent some of our comics. And if you're a comic book fan today, maybe this sounds familiar because DC has said in September they're relaunching all their titles, updating their characters, making them new for a new generation. So this is not something new that DC is just starting. This is something they've done in the past with success. And so they first did it with the Flash. They updated the Flash. And then the second one, that proved successful. So they said, hey, let's update Green Lantern. But let's give it, instead of this magic thing, let's give it a sci-fi twist. They brought in the Hal Jordan as the jet pilot. And it became this big space adventure. It, I mean, it's blown up. But Green Lantern, I think this movie came out a year late. Because last year with the comics, the huge DC crossover was Blackest Night. Which is about the Green Lantern cores and all these different lanterns from the whole light spectrum. If you're familiar with Roy G. Bibb, there's a core for each of the different spectrums of light and that they were fighting the Black Lanterns. I mean, so there's huge popularity because it is this big, huge space adventure, sci-fi adventure that people really got into. And it's massive. I mean, it's... And to clarify, this was going on during the space race. This was the 60s version of the comic? Yeah, when they relaunched, it was 1959. So very much into that whole space race era. Uh-huh. But yeah, there, like you said, there's been John Stewart, who was the African-American version. There's been a few different human characters for the Green Lantern. They're going with the most iconic with Hal Jordan for this film. And that's the one I knew. I mean, my background with Green Lantern, as we've said, I kind of focused more on Marvel in my hobbying. And so my background of Green Lantern was limited to Super Friends and the Super Friends when they kind of became the Justice League. And I knew he had a green ring that made stuff. And I knew his enemy was Sinestro, who had a yellow ring that made other stuff. And that was all I knew about it going in. I hadn't seen any of the later cartoons for Justice League. If you said Jon Stewart to me, I'd think Daily Show, not Green Lantern. (laughs) (laughs) So Hal Jordan is just one of the five. The one that looks most like Ryan Reynolds. Well... We could talk about that, <laughs> because I think if you wanted to go with the Hal Jordan Green Lantern, I don't think Ryan Reynolds was the right choice. He is a right choice for a different version of the Green Lantern. 
that we've seen in the comics. Interesting. Because casting is weighing on my mind heavily, as you guys know, that have been listening to X-Men and the build-up to this podcast. I didn't know Reynolds, and I wasn't necessarily won over by his ten minutes in Wolverine. You guys were the ones telling me he's great, he's funny, he's terrific. So, you know, I've been trying to catch up. I saw a couple of his movies posted on Facebook. You're telling me now it didn't work? Because I'm telling you, I still don't see this guy as a superhero. Stuart, I had flashbacks of everything you said about Ryan Reynolds during this film because he did not work in this role. Whatever direction he was given, I don't know, the writing, whatever, he doesn't work. He doesn't have that charm that I felt he had in Wolverine. We'll talk about Blade 3. I liked him a lot in that. He didn't bring that to this film or the director didn't bring it out in him. I just felt he's kind of flat in this movie. Jacob and I both, you called us the Ryan Reynolds fan club before. So I was happy to see him here. I usually like his energy. I thought he was pretty good in this. I mean, I really think that the man has a charisma where you want to see him on screen. You are drawn to him. He's likable enough. I'm not going to say he was perfect for this. I'm not going to say I bought his every emotion. A lot of it, I think a different actor could have portrayed perhaps some of the angst of, am I good enough to be a lantern? What is it they see in me? It would have been better if he was just cocky all the way through, because that's kind of what I got from him. This whole self-doubting bit didn't play quite right, but overall, I liked him in this, and I think in the hands of a different actor, this movie could have been far worse, but in another actor, it could have also been better. But I'm glad they got somebody to play it light, because if you got a Channing Tatum or somebody who wouldn't bring that levity to it, I think this movie could have gone south. Obviously, we said Iron Man already. They wanted a Robert Downey Jr. They wanted somebody to be flip and flippant and funny and a womanizer. I mean, the first time we see Ryan Reynolds in this film, he's waking up next to some girl he doesn't know and says there's water in the tap. They're going for Robert Downey. They want this to be Tony Stark. And I think he did Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man 2 good, but not Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man 1 good. I'm going to disagree with you there. I think Robert Downey Jr. is a really fun actor to watch. I think this guy should be modeling underwear or doing sports casting or some other career that's not acting. I just, I don't see it. I've seen several movies now in different genres, and I have the opposite effect of you. There's nothing about him that's interesting to me. You said he could act in that one movie. The Nines? I said he showed some acting chops. I didn't say I wanted to see him. That's different. You're right about one thing, is that Warner Brothers always wanted a jocular guy with attitude to play this part. This movie's been in development for quite some time, and I remember reading, like, who's attached this week. I mean, Jack Black. At one point, this was going to be a vehicle for Jack Black. What? No. No. <laughs> yeah. The fans were in an uproar. Was he going to fart and green energy was going to come out of his butt? I wouldn't have doubted it. That seems like something they would have done. Oh, uh, the fatties fart three. Bradley Cooper, you know, right after The Hangover, they were thinking it was him. Even the guy from The Office, John Krasinski, they really wanted a, a comedian, J uh, Justin Timberlake. They were not going for Christian Bale, leading man, Batman serious. They wanted this series to be light. They did want it to not be heavy-handed. You know, let's face it, it's about people in space fighting with their jewelry. You, you can't play that serious. It's just, it's impossible. I think there is a version of the Green Lantern where this would work. Hal Jordan's, he's more of a straight-laced guy. There is a version of the Green Lantern that they could have used if they wanted 
to do more of a comedic take. And I don't think, you know, yes, Green Lantern has a hardcore comic book following, but you got to appeal to more people. So I don't think it would have been a huge problem to use one of the different characters that have played this superhero. Well, we, we could get into this. I, f- I feel like once we get into Hal Jordan's character arc, we'll be able to iron through a lot of this. All right, I, I agree. Well, let's start with the beginning. If anyone wants to parse out that beginning... Uh, my question is, so it starts with this big, narrated, epic voiceover. Was all this exposition necessary? Because I went with my wife to this film, and this whole opening scene just confused her. And They explain all this exposition throughout the film. I really felt this whole opening scene was tacked on because maybe test audience said they weren't really getting what was going on. I think that they were really nervous about playing something so big in scope here. I mean, it is a lot to take in. It's one thing in the traditional superhero movie to say, ah, you find a magical lantern and now you're fighting people on Earth. It's another thing to say you're a cop in a precinct of the universe and we're going to meet every cop at the big convention on OA. I mean, that's <laughs> and it's a lot of nerd speak. I'm sorry, people, fans of the comics and all. But when you're saying things like OA and Sinestro and Parallax and all of that, like average people that don't read comics are going, oh, God, this is not we're going, oh, ah. This is not for me. This is not something that I can handle. And it's 10 minutes of that. It's really alienating. All right. It was not 10 minutes of voiceover. The voiceover was, you know, maybe three paragraphs. And at first I'm thinking, wow, this is one hell of an information dump. But the second thing that hit me, because as he's speaking, we're basically seeing like this really weird, like Carl Sagan vision of the universe. Right. And Mm. it hit me. This is basically like a spoken version of the Star Wars crawl, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it achieves the same kind of thing, but I feel like the Star Wars crawl was a little bit more quaint and uh, quick. It didn't try to explain all of the connections right away. This movie really wants you to understand that there's these stone-faced, bulbous-headed immortals who, did they create the universe, or they just guard the universe? They guard it. They watch over it. They're an ancient race that, that's okay. been around since near the beginning of the creation of the universe. But they are not God, because I was like, why does God need cops? I don't know. <laughs> I had a real quick question about the Guardians. Are they, like, super long-legged, or do they just wear really long robes? Napoleon cops Totally. Yes. They're like four <laughs> feet tall. They're midgets with really big capes. Yes. I wasn't sure if they were like just really long legged and tiny waist up or if they were just, yeah, again, inferiority complex. So they have huge robes. I was waiting to see if they were going to play that up where one finally like comes down from their high and mighty chair and stands next to like Sinestro and he sees like this four foot tall little alien but no like some of this film we'll get into the tone it goes all over the place and it always seemed way too solemn when they were on oa agreed so they talk about all this and then you see these three aliens in space and they just happen to stumble across parallax and i honestly thought what we were seeing based on that voiceover was going to be the trapping of parallax but at the same time they had told us that abin sir had been the one to use his magic ring to contain the bad guy. I just thought they were reiterating, and I thought we were about to see Abin Sur contain the bad guy. But instead, no, it's three anonymous aliens on the planet for reasons never decided. Well, Arnie, you said in the plot summary that they're Green Lanterns. I didn't get that. It looks like they crash-landed and they do their little weird alien talks, mentioning that they need help, and they landed in, what was it, the Forbidden Sector or something on the planet Riot? Very subtle 
imagery in this film. Yeah, Sector uh, 666. Actually, in the comic, that's where the Black Lanterns live, who uh, are the resurrected dead. Sector 666. Very subtle, very sophisticated comic stuff here. <laughs> but no, I took it as they were just uh, some alien race that crash-landed there and happened to find Parallax. You got that they were Green Lanterns, though? I thought they were. I don't know why. I thought they had the rings, and they seem to be there purposefully. You know, they fall through a hole, but I thought that they were there in that sector for some Green Lantern reason. See, when they were calling for help, again, I thought that we were about to see the trapping of Parallax. I thought they were calling for help because they were fighting Parallax. And so when they get down there and see Parallax is already trapped, I was very confused. And I wondered for about half the movie, were these Green Lanterns or not? And then later on, Sinestro is giving a big speech and says, four lanterns have been killed. Well, there's the three, and then there's Abin Sur. So I just took it as off-screen deaths for some random lanterns. Who knows? It seems too coincidental that four, and we see four. So I'm thinking these are lanterns. We aren't introduced, thank God, to any just random alien species. There's no, you know, the closest we get is the Star Wars cantina-like scene of all of the core coming together for a big meeting. But we don't really interact with alien species, alien worlds, non-lantern aliens at any point in this movie. So I think these were lanterns. I just want to ask you guys, not knowing a lot about the Green Lanterns, were you just confused that why are we in space at the beginning of this film? Where's Ryan Reynolds? I mean, were you expecting this big space epic? I was because of the trailer. But if you had said they made a movie about Green Lantern and I had seen nothing, I would have been very confused because I didn't know that he flew space. I didn't know he was a cop. And that was sort of what this prologue told me at the end of the day. We're in a cop movie, but instead of it being about driving around in a squad car in New York, he has to patrol a section of the universe that contains Earth. And, you know, honestly, I think that's a pretty fun concept. I think you could go with that if you wanted to set the movie in space. But you gotta stay there. One of my complaints about the movie in total is it doesn't know whether it wants to be on Earth or in space. Well, I knew that this was going to be a bit of a space epic, but again, I go to Comic-Con every year, so I knew more just about the marketing of this and some of the background. I knew nothing about the Green Lantern Corps until they started talking about the making of this movie and everything. So I wasn't shocked that it started off in space. I'd even heard them saying they wanted it to be this big space epic. They're envisioning it as Star Wars. They're envisioning it as a trilogy. So no, I wasn't shocked by that at all. However, I was always happier when they were on Earth. When they go into space, I don't know. I just never felt as connected to the characters, to the situations. I preferred this when it was an Earth-bound movie reacting to a space-bound evil, a la Deep Impact or Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer, versus trying to be Star Wars and going to Oa. I think it's too much too soon. I think that for an introductory story for the masses, it might have been smarter to make part one all on Earth with the promise of now I can go into space at the end for the big battle and then deal with the core and all of that comes with it in the subsequent movies. It's a lot to take in and they don't know how to tell it to us. So you're right. It's a big information dump before they finally realize, hey, there's a whole section of our audience that wants to bolt and get the aisle. So let's show Ryan Reynolds in his underwear right now. You know, I would agree, but here's what I'm going to say this movie does really well. And we've talked about so many superhero movies and so many origin stories and things where they always try to cludge it together and they stick so closely to the comic books and have so many disparate elements. 
I agree with you that to me it would make sense to make this entire movie Earthbound, and at the very end he flies off into space, and then we have the promise of the bigger, better, badder sequel, right? Mm -hmm. But in this one, I really like that this is an origin story where the origin of our hero, the origin of his nemesis, and the entire overarching threat to Earth are all intertwined. There is a cause-effect reason why all these things are happening. And it's a very tight, well-constructed story in that way. What? Yeah, I I'm going to have to go with Stuart here. What? <laughs> oh, my God! Oh, I can okay. see I'm going to stand alone on this podcast. I was going with you until you got into tight, well-constructed story. Yeah, well-woven. There are, like, four screenwriters on this that I don't think even speak to each other. I mean, <laughs> there is a lot of different ideas about to handle this, and I think there are probably four really good drafts of how to make it tightly woven, but then those four tightly woven drafts were woven together, and the end result is not so tightly woven. But you have to admit, I mean, they are trying to do a lot in this movie. There's a lot of characters. And, Stuart, we recently have talked about a couple of Transformers films that had a lot of characters. Here, I think when you have the human villain of Hector Hammond, the intergalactic villain of Parallax, the setting up future villain of Sinestro, which because of Justice League, I knew he would someday turn yellow and evil because, I mean, his name's Sinister for crying out loud. I know. like <laughs> Very subtle, sophisticated <laughs> comics. <laughs> yes. It really is. So I knew they were setting him up. I honestly thought he'd turn evil, this movie. That was my shock. And they're giving an origin story of the Green Lantern. The fact that it's all tied into Parallax and Abin Sur. The fact that there's no coincidence, that it's not just happening. It's all Abin Sur and Parallax that caused Hector Hammond, that caused Green Lantern, and caused the Jeopardy for Earth. I thought that was a well-done construct when you're trying to do so much. To have it all originate from one point is logical to me. Yeah, on paper that makes sense, but then you got to write it. I would not say that we all understand how it goes from those two to all of the different areas. I think it seems like studios, they want to throw everything out in this first film because they don't know if they're going to get the sequel. But I would have loved, you know, keep some mystery. This alien crash lands, gives Hal Jordan a ring. He fights Hector Hammond. That's what it should have been. Parallax should have been kept for the second film. And then in the second film, okay, we're going to expand this origin story. We're going to show you the behind-the-scenes stuff that gives Hal Jordan a reason to go and fight in space. That's what I would have liked to see, you know. Have Hal figure out the powers of the ring on his own. He's this cocksure guy. Let him figure it out, and then in the second film, oh, wait, you don't really know everything you think you know. We're going to train you to be even a better space cop. I, I understand they don't know if they're going to get a sequel out of here, so they're going to throw everything in. Actually, I completely disagree with what you're saying there, Jacob, because they think they're getting a sequel. The end credit scene shows us they think they're getting a sequel. They Yes, Wolverine Origins also thought it was getting a Deadpool spinoff. So. And they are. It's just a matter of time. But in this case... I think that they went to space because they thought that's what would set this character apart. This is what would make him different than all the other superhero movies we've seen. How many times have we seen superheroes fighting on Earth against other Earth-bound things? If you did that, there would be nothing to separate this from Superman, from Iron Man. By making it a space adventure, you give it a unique spin. There's a lot of superhero movies this summer. I think Green Lantern is the only one to go to a foreign planet. No, you're right. It's the novelty that sells it. I'll split the difference here. I feel like they could have been more mysterious with the setup of some of this. I could have totally rolled with it if the movie opened with Abin Sir 
getting a report in space, and we're like, who is this alien fighting Parallax and blasting to Earth and giving the ring to Hal? I feel like we just get the idea that there's something massive happening in space, but then get to how quickly I would be more invested in the story and wanting to know how we get back up into space. And I want to say, I didn't hate the space stuff. I actually enjoyed the space stuff, but it just seems like this movie's so imbalanced that I don't get enough of the space stuff to really see this as a space movie. I don't get enough of the human Earth stuff to grasp onto that part of it. They want to eat their cake and have it too. That's the problem with this film. And, you know, I guess we can talk about this more as we go through it. I did sometimes note to myself, hey, it's been a long time since we've seen Sinestro and Oa. And other times I'd be like, what the hell's going on with Hector Hammond? I will say the balance is not perfect, but I thought overall more of it was working for me than wasn't, but I did much prefer the Earth stuff. And so let's get to Earth. We start off, we're introduced to Maverick. I'm, I'm sorry. Topper. No, wait, his name's Hal. Yes, we're not in Top Gun here, even though that's what they want us to think. For a movie advocating to overcome your fear as much as they do, it's shocking how quickly they run like scaredy cats to the big hit of Tom Cruise's career to sell us on this new guy. Like, really? You're gonna just steal from Top Gun because you are afraid of establishing this character in a more imaginative way? I mean, this movie is, like I said, Ten minutes of nerd speak, and then they give us a naked Ryan Reynolds jumping into Top Gun. I mean, they're doing everything they can to please all sectors of the audience. I'm surprised the aerial fight wasn't set to Danger Zone. <laughs> to, I guess, be fair to the movie, they were just emulating the comic. And DC, their continuity is a mess. It seems like every couple of years they give their characters a new origin story. Including this year, right? Yeah, yeah, in September, it's it's coming up, all the new origin stories. But they went off the most recent version. Hal Jordan's dad was a pilot. He dies. Jordan saw that. And ever since then, he wanted to conquer the skies and get in an airplane. And as the day he turned 18, he snuck out of the house and signed up for the Air Force. And so, for better or for worse, they're going off the comic material. Now, this was written in 2006, the comic. So he may have just been taking his notes from Top Gun. And sadly, even more than Top Gun... Because of how this was told, I was thinking Hot Shots. i right there with you, because I've seen Hot Shots way more than I've seen Top Gun, so I understand that Hot Shots is based on Top Gun, but I always go to Hot Shots. You know, it, it, you're not just emulating the original, you're emulating the parody of the original, and now it's so watered down. That did not work for me, because it's just so trite. Trite is the word. They, they're they trying so hard to make him a likable figure, it's not working. I don't like this guy. I mean, it's problem one of, of numerous problems here. Here is why would anyone like Hal? Here they are. They're trying to get a defense contract. Everything's riding on this. He and... Is the girl riding with him, Carol? Yes. It is. It is. It is. I wasn't clear on that. What gave it away to me... I mean, there's a scene where they establish that, but what gave it away is she has the code name Sapphire. Right. And she has this little emblem on her helmet. And in the comics, Carol Ferris becomes a star Sapphire lantern, which is based on the violet light spectrum. Oh my is, god. They have the power of love versus the power of will or fear. So do they end up meeting all together and having a lantern pride parade? Uh, yeah, there's a series with the September relaunch at DC. They're actually having one where it's a member from each of the Roy G. Biv lanterns as a team. So yes, Arnie, there is a, a rainbow pride 
group of lanterns. Wow. So he, he flies too high in the atmosphere, and I'm sitting here, and maybe I've been doing now playing for too long, because I'm like, well, I bet we see this maneuver again when he's a Green Lantern. But what I didn't expect is he actually uses his wingmate as a decoy, and she dies. Well, in, in the war game, she dies. She survives the flight. But... I wish that that character trait of willing to sacrifice his wingmate would have come back up. Yeah, isn't that supposed to come back up at the end where he's about to sacrifice him, but then he realizes that he's changed and he's going to sacrifice himself instead? I mean, that's how movies work. They do it a little differently, actually. You're thinking about it from the wrong approach. They bring it back up in the end because she turns around and saves him. Carol shows that there's no hard feelings and she's not going to let him go down. She could escape, but she gets behind something and shoots at Parallax. Okay, that was a little too subtle for me, I guess. <laughs> yes, I didn't get that at all. Anyway, to my point, the guy wrecks his aircraft... He is unapologetic. He gets a bunch of people fired. There's nothing to like about this guy. I, yeah, he's a total mess. And yet, at the same time that he's this cocksure daredevil, we're told that he's filled with fear. It, does that even make sense? It's bullcrap. Yes. Thank you. They totally blew it with the characterization here. He can't be this reckless with this government equipment and then say, I'm just so afraid I'm going to end up like my dad who just tried to taxi down the runway and blew up. I mean, like, it doesn't make any sense. There's no connection. I actually took it as he had crash landed, if that helps anything. It may not. I didn't take it as that. I took it as it just blew up as he's going down the runway for some reason. They show him getting in, waving goodbye, starting to fly up, and then something bursts and it falls to the ground. And then he's okay, and then it explodes. So he wasn't reckless. He wasn't a daredevil. He was trying to fly his plane and died for it. To which I would say, if the son was so traumatized by that, he would never get into a plane again. And he's not, though. In the comics, he wants to be like his dad. Right. That's not fear-based. That's the opposite of fearless. And it doesn't make any sense that he's scared in this film. He's willing to fly his fighter up into space where he knows it's going to conk out to defeat the robot airplanes, you know, to blow this contract for the company he works for. Right. He doesn't care about that. He's not worried about that. Yes. He breaks protocol to destroy the planes they're trying to sell and help the company. And as a consequence, not only does he blow up his own plane, but a lot of people get fired. And then when they come to beat him <laughs> up, we're supposed to cheer him. I'm like, no, I'm with the three dudes that want to bash your face in. You're a jerk. I was kind of ambivalent to him at this point. I did take him as kind of this daredevil who is haunted by his father's past. I saw him as fearless, which is why I thought the ring chose him, as he was like the man without fear. That's how he's supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I got, is he was a man without fear. That's why he was willing to risk his own life to defeat these, is he was going to sacrifice whatever it took to win. And he was fearless. But then memories of his father, he's haunted by this past. I didn't take it as paralyzed with fear necessarily, which is why later on when, like, he's seeming self-doubting, it didn't play for me. Yeah, they keep calling it out how scared he is of it. They never show him being afraid of anything. Mm -hmm. Yes, he freezes up with some flashbacks, but then they spend half the film telling us he's a scaredy cat. I'm not seeing that he's a scaredy cat, but they're telling me that. Nothing's jiving for me here. Here's what needed to happen with these daredevil scenes. He needed to be totally cocksure. I'm going to beat these guys. And then he needed to scare himself. You don't have a flashback 
back to a dad complex. It's played out. They've done it in a lot of superhero stuff. Don't even go there. His cocksureness gets him into trouble that he doesn't think he's going to survive, and maybe he almost doesn't survive, and from that point on, he quits. He doesn't want to get in a plane. He's afraid, and you build from there. But you don't have him all of a sudden in the middle of accomplishing shooting down the two planes. What he set out to do is suddenly go, oh, remember when my dad taxied down the runway and died? I can't do this anymore. I'm going to eject. The problem is there were several different drafts of the script, and one makes sense for one way and one makes sense for the other, but combined together, they don't make sense as a character. Many things in this film, and we're going to get to a big one later, but many things in the opening of this film make me think that there may be scenes on the cutting room floor or pages never filmed that would have helped explain this. You know, This movie is an hour and 45 minutes. They didn't spend $300 million to make a movie under two hours. This movie has been expertly cut down to the quick to get through it. Anything that doesn't serve the most obvious underlining points and bullet points they want to convey got cut. And there's, I'm willing to bet, at least an hour of movie, not footage, an hour of movie that has been excised from this. And I think perhaps some of that would have helped define this, because I would have gone with it if this bravado, this fearlessness, is a mask covering his private fears and his private anxieties, and he can't commit to a relationship because he's afraid, and he can't eject from the plane because he's afraid. You know, if it was a deep-seated private fear that he hid from everybody, I would have gone with it. But the way it is portrayed in this theatrical cut, yeah, it did not make sense to me later on when he keeps going, I'm afraid. I'm like, if you're afraid, why were you flying to where your plane stalled? That would scare me. Yeah, no, we can all agree it's a problem of the writing. That the character is not making sense here. And that, unfairly, Ryan Reynolds is being asked to play two entirely different characters, depending on when the script needs him to be one. And when the guys come to beat him up at the bar... I don't know. I can't say I was rooting for either side. I was just like, oh, here's the scene. I honestly was trying to figure out why these guys were beating him up. I'm like, that's a convenient mugging time. Yeah, I didn't even know who they were. No, before. no, no. That's Bob. That's one of the guys that he has. Uh, he's- I got it when he said, I told you to watch your back. But when the fight started, it goes on for like a number of punches, very poorly choreographed punches. And I'm like, who are, is he just getting mugged? Or why, why are they attacking? Then they, they explain it. And I go, oh, yeah, I kind of remember these. These guys saying that they were upset and they lost their job, but... Yeah, I'm glad they called it out, because I knew this was going to be a mugging scene, because whenever they linger on that shot, when you walk outside of a bar and it's dark and you hear the glass break in the background, you know something's coming. But yeah, Arnie, I was confused until they finally called out, hey, you cost us our jobs. I'm like, okay, now I know who these guys are. It was confusing at first. I think they would like for you to think that it's a mugger, because then you're against them. But the fact of the matter is, in this day and age in America, we're with a laid-off worker. <laughs> we're on feeling their pain. The jerk that broke protocol and got to keep his job, but cost you yours, is not sympathetic. So if this guy's such an ass, why'd the ring choose him? And I have a question about this, and maybe, Jacob, you could answer this as a comic guy. Abed Sur crashes on Earth, and he tells the ring, go pick well. Was the ring, you know, restricted geographically? Did it have to find somebody within, say, a 100-mile radius? The ring, it was going to find the closest acceptable person. And I've talked about these different versions of the Green Lantern in the comics. So there's one named Guy Gardner, and the choice was between Hal Jordan and Guy Gardner, and Hal Jordan was just closer to the ring, so he got picked. They were both found worthy, but Hal Jordan was just in, in closer proximity. I mean, in, in the comic, Abin Sur crashes in the desert 
which makes more sense than him crashing at a dock. Uh, Stuart, you live next to Santa Monica. Is the Santa Monica Pier ever that empty? <laughs> I mean, if an alien crashed there, even if it was in the middle of the night, at least all the homeless people that sleep there would not. I mean, I don't understand. There's buildings around there, and this aliens just crashed there for like 12 hours before the, the feds show up. But no, it's the ring. It finds the closest person that is worthy of it, and that's it. So if Abin Sur would have crashed in Africa, and there was an African worthy of the ring, it would have found them before Hal Jordan. Okay, I actually, I like that better because, you know, I could see that Ryan Reynolds might be the most worthy person in all of New Orleans or wherever this is, but the most worthy person in the world? Yeah. And yet, this is a story celebrating a hero who was good enough to be standing nearby when I crashed. I mean, it's, I, you know, <laughs> I, like, a lot of the bestness are about how everyone can find their inner strength and be a superhero. Here, I just feel like it's a lot of convenience and jewelry. Like, this is not the way to build up a hero. He just seems kind of slight uh, you'll have to do for now. Especially when they make a big deal about it's the first human Green Lantern and he's going to teach us all about humanity. I mean, you would hope that the ring took a little bit more time to really pick out a, a worthy representative humanity besides, well, he's the closest one that's the most worthy. So back to the swamp. <laughs> the swamp. It's Coast City. It's an ocean somewhere. Did they ever call it out as Coast City? Because I kept wondering where this was. They showed on the news. Oh, okay. DC is not set in a real universe. They have a version of New York City, but, you know, you guys have seen Superman and Batman. You have Metropolis and Gotham, and this is Coast City. This is where Hal Jordan is from. I hate their city names, but that's a not here than there. <laughs> so it picks Hal, literally it picks him up and flies him to the swamp and he's given the ring. Here's one thing that I didn't buy. Is he, I honestly, I thought he was military at this point. I didn't realize he was a test pilot for a private company because of the Top Gun thing. I felt very Air Force. He used to be an Air Force pilot and was discharged because he was always crashing planes. I don't think they bring that up in this film. They just mention that he is a test pilot for a private company. He seems awfully willing to immediately just jack the ring and lantern and go. And bury the alien. Yeah. I didn't get that from his character at this point, that he'd be like, I'm going to help cover up the conspiracy and steal this ring and avoid authority. I mean, if I, I got to honestly say, if, if an alien showed up and gave me a ring, I probably would be like, okay, could somebody check out this ring before I do anything? Radiation, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I would wait for the authorities to show up and talk about it with them. Yes, I agree. I mean, this is very much set in 1950s science fiction where uh, the alien shows up and gives you the magic item that gives you powers and you accept it. It's very childish. And one of my criticisms, and I talked about how there's some even tones in this film, is this film doesn't know if it wants to be for teenagers, for adults, for kids. I, You know, you said at the beginning, Stuart, that they at one time they thought Jack Black might make a suitable Green Lantern. I think there is a good all-ages film that you can make with this where some of these plot holes that, oh, I'm just going to take this ring for whatever reason and bury this alien and be a nice guy, even though I just cost a, an entire company all their jobs, where that would make more sense. But because, I mean, this is a PG-13 film, they've been swearing and flipping the middle finger, you're expecting a little bit more sophistication, I guess. I gotta say, when he takes the ring and the lantern, though, and he's sitting there trying all these oaths and does the to infinity and beyond and by the power of Grayskull, the audience around me was cracking up. I was mildly amused, but the audience was eating it up. Yeah, I agree. I was mildly amused. 
But yes, the audience, they were loving it. I feel like this is what Ryan Reynolds does, right? Sarcasm. This is what I'm getting off of him is like, oh, I can't believe you gave me this thing to do. And like he's complaining, you know, like he's just a grunt. Like he's an everyday Joe that's complaining about his job. And yeah, this is a scene where he's going to play to his strengths. That said, I don't like the guy. I don't think he's funny. <laughs> I don't think he's charming. See, again, I think it's something that has to go with the direction. He didn't come off as Deadpool here, where he's just throwing out all these one-liners trying to figure out the oath. And I was confused because the director of this film, he did... Casino Royale, GoldenEye. Like, two of the better Bonds films. And Mask of Zorro, which I like. I don't remember that. I, I remember seeing it. I don't recall it. But, you know, this is the guy that did two good Bond films. And Bond is full of the little quips and one-liners. I don't know why it's not working in this film. Well, here's the thing. Martin Campbell seems to be really good at jump-starting heroic characters in franchises. You know, he not only Prosnan, but also Daniel Craig. You know, that was their first Bond and Zorro hadn't been done on screen in a while. I think that's why he got this gig. It's like, you'll jumpstart this superhero that's never been done before. But I honestly think the man has no taste for this spandex stuff. I think that to him, this is not a compelling world. And we're getting into my larger thoughts about the movie, but I'm willing to bet that absolutely no one in this cast or crew, right down to the caterer, really cared about this character. They cared about creating a big movie. And there's a passionlessness to this that is pervasive. The whole movie feels like it was done by people that really want to do their job, but really don't care about this property. I don't think there's a Green Lantern fan to be found anywhere in this production. It's efficient filmmaking, but is any of this cooking you? I mean, at any, like, he's going to fly up to another world now and get his suit and learn about the creatures and all that, and it couldn't feel more perfunctory. It couldn't feel less magical. I will agree with that. I was not hooked at this point. If anything, I was kind of scratching my head. I never understood during the whole recitation of the oath what triggered the power, you know, where he, he just kind of smacks the lantern and a spark flies. I, I wish that we'd seen Abin Sur do something with that lantern in the ring earlier. I wish there was no damn lantern. <laughs> it looks like they want to, it's a Coleman thing for camping. I mean, this is not... Stuart even looks more like a regular lantern in the comics. They try to sci-fi it up in this film. So if this didn't work for you, don't read the comic. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that gets sand kicked in your face, nerds. This is why we hate you, is when <laughs> oh. you, like, say, like, I did not have a lantern! And, like, that's dumb. That is some dumb shit right there. You cannot be heroic and put on a ring and carry around a lantern and say I'm cool. But his name is the Green Lantern. He's kind of screwed, right? <laughs> No, he can have the emblem on his chest and just deal with that. Batman doesn't go around, like, feeding little bats, does he? He has batarangs. He throws bat-shaped objects. Here's the thing, though, and I don't think they played this up in the film, is the whole point of the lantern, or sometimes it's called the battery. Yeah, it was like a nice charging station. or <laughs> Yeah, and that ring, it has to be charged with the willpower every, I think, once every 24 hours. And so I'm waiting for the moment where he goes to blast something and it doesn't work because he hasn't charged it and he's got to hurry and get the lantern. Like, they never play that up. They just play it, oh, that's part of his origin story, so let's show that and then never go back to it. I completely agree, but by the same token, my Green Lantern friend who left, told me that at the end, the reason Hal couldn't escape the sun is because his ring had lost power, and that's why the other lanterns had to pull him back. I, 
I didn't get that, but he did. They didn't call that out, though. That's not in the movie. It needs, like, a little cell phone battery light, you know, <laughs> where, like, you're running low. There needs to be some visual to let you know how much juice is in your ring, if this is the way you're going to go. That was another thing that they set up and never paid off. Maybe it'll pay off in a sequel. But before we know it, we're taken to green screen land of Oa. And I got to say, I was kind of hoping for good things at this point. You know, they definitely go for the Star Wars cantina scene feel here with all these weird different aliens and i like sci-fi i i like this kind of stuff i was hoping none of the earth stuff is working for me at this point i'm not hooked so i'm like okay i'm ready to reset my expectations we're gonna get into the colorful land of oz here with everything being emerald green i'm a big fan of speed racer and all the colors and the fast pace so i'm willing to reset my expectations once they get to oa and go okay now i'm gonna give you another chance to hook me let's have some crazy alien fun adventures here i'm surprised at how little fun is had on Oa, because I really thought from the trailers, and knowing that we had Michael Clark Duncan there as the voice of one of these weird aliens, and Mark Strong as Sinestro, I really thought they'd play a much larger part of this movie than they did. But really, we just get this little training montage where everybody takes their swipes at him, and then he's sent back to Earth. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is a lot more movie here. They got cut. I mean, I think that this was the stuff when they tested it or played it to people that aren't comic book people that wasn't convincing. And you know what? It doesn't look good. The visually, all this money they've supposedly spent on this movie, nothing here looks any more impressive than something you could get on Xbox. It is just one big garish green video game. I'm torn on the visuals. At times, I thought it looked really good, and at times, I thought it looked really bad. And it would be back and forth of the same scene sometimes. And here, it was good enough. It didn't pull me out. It wasn't magical. The point of the thing is that once we get to another world, wow, right? Avatar, wow. That was wow. Pandora impressed me. This world did not. I was disappointed that I wasn't just enthralled with Oa. And as far as the special effects go, I'm, I'm with you, Arnie. They're adequate. The only scene that took me out is during the Sinestro Hal Jordan training fight scene. The, the CGI seemed to get really lumpy at times with these real heads, but CGI suits. But overall, you know, one of the things that was hurting, I think, this film was the perception of how bad the CGI was going to be. And they went and invested a lot more money to upgrade the CGI. It wasn't as awful as I think people were expecting. True. I was really expecting terrible. And what I got, at no point did it feel real to me, but it was fine. It didn't pull me out. So let's celebrate mediocrity. But <laughs> Well, that's what I'm doing with this movie entirely. <laughs> I mean, the metaphor just comes crystal clear when he gets his suit. It's the Emperor's new clothes. We can see that it's not on him, but everyone is pretending like it's on him. And that's what I feel like is happening here. It's like, oh yes, we're in a magical world. Isn't this impressive? I'm like, I know this is a bunch of computer bullshit. You want me to see the clothes that aren't there. And I'm the little kid that points out that they're not. I don't know. I mean, the mask was terrible, right? And I'm glad that the movie calls out its sillier parts. Like, you think I can't recognize you because you covered your cheekbones. They do that all the time. They did so much mocking of the whole mythology. I mean, that's Ryan Reynolds' job is like, I got a lamp from a purple alien and I'm supposed to pledge to it. Can you believe it? No, I can't. 
But you were saying the same thing, Stuart. I mean, I, I think you'd like him more because you're right there with him. You don't believe it either. But that's what my point. Even he can't buy into this crap. I think it's good that they don't try to sell you something so ridiculous, you know? But why are they selling it to me at all? I guess that's my point. If this property is that ridiculous <laughs> and they can't find any merit to it, maybe you don't make the $300 million franchise out of it. I gotta say, I, everyone was skeptical of the electronic energy suit, I guess we're calling it. It ends up working for me, you know? It's it's a product of his ring. In the comics, he would always have to go and, you know, very Superman, find a phone booth to go into to change into his copy outfit. Yeah, I guess my expectations were so low because of the marketing and all the pre-movie mumbo-jumbo that yeah, it came off adequate. I guess we are celebrating mediocrity because we were expecting this to be so much worse. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So, Oa was at best perfunctory. I didn't really get much out of it except that I think it might have been a mistake, and this is DC's mistake, not the movie's mistake, to make there be over 3,000 Green Lanterns. Doesn't it make Hal feel not special? I was just wondering why all 3,600 Green Lanterns were on Oa instead of, you know, patrolling their sectors. Like, you know, this is like all the cops got together at the donut <laughs> shop, got the big green donut symbol there. It is definitely the big green donut shop. I love that. Yes, you're right. Meanwhile, the world is going to hell because Parallax is eating it all. But it just seems like the thing about Superman is he's the last of Krypton, right? And... All the others, they're just the only one. But here there's 3,600, so if Hal messes up and dies, well, we got 3599 left. That's why I kind of wish this felt more like a cop movie. That's how I saw this being, this outer space stuff being. It's like, isn't it funny you're the new recruit in this crazy universe and you're learning on the job? I think that would have been a way to play it, but you can't go back to Earth. That's the thing. If you're making a movie about an outer space cop, you write him that he didn't fit in on Earth, and you make it about him finding his place in space. Stuart, I'm there with you. You know, I kind of felt like we did have our cop moments when we had Kilowog, voiced by Michael Clark Duncan, doing his training. They try to bring some of that humor there with the rookie. And, you know, did you catch the slang poozer? I, I was wondering what that was. Was that like Nugget from Battlestar or Newbie? Yeah, it's basically... Kilowog's language for rookie. That, that's the way he puts down the rookies by calling them poozers. It sounded kind of dirty to me. <laughs> I didn't get any of that, but, you know, I, I kind of like uh, some of these supporting characters, like I said, if we had gotten to know them, but you're right. It's a montage and they're gone, and truly, I, I feel like they're really scared to spend too much time in space for fear of alienating people that aren't into fantasy films. I gotta say, Stuart, at least they didn't introduce the Green Lantern chip which is spelled C-H apostrophe P, which is literally a some kind of Green Lantern that's a squirrel or a chipmunk. <laughs> yeah, that's Does a really popular it? Green Lantern character. They didn't bring him oh. in here, which I was disappointed. Oh, he should have had a cameo. There were naked women. There were all kinds of I aliens. Know. You got to have the chipmunk. Like oh that, my God. I, I think that's what the fans are going to be most disappointed about, that there's no chip in this film. Seems like the fans have a lot <laughs> to be disappointed about from what you're telling me, but I don't know. The fans I was there with, they enjoyed it. For the most part, they were laughing and cheering and going along with it so far. So here's the thing. There's a parallel story going on. While Hal is learning how to be a magical space cop, we're also following a character that's meant to be his opposite, his nemesis. And that was so freaking obvious, wasn't it? They both have daddy issues. They're yes. both going through the same thing. One's going to green, one's going to yellow. On the one hand, I liked the parallels drawn. On the other hand, it was so ham-handed and obvious. <laughs> 
More to the point, isn't this the inverse of the typical superhero story arc? Like, shouldn't Hammond actually be Green Lantern? Like, he's the nerd that has no friends playing chess with a computer. Ryan Reynolds, the douche that flies jets and wrecks them and doesn't care about the beautiful women that are throwing themselves at him. I mean, who's the sympathetic one? Who's the one that we want to see overcome their fear and become great? No, Ryan Reynolds is the great one, and Peter Sarsgaard is disgusting. I was more into the film when Sarsgaard was on screen, when Hector Hammond was on screen. He's a better actor. I was more engaged. I was more into his character, which is probably the opposite effect this film was supposed to have. But I actually, I liked the, the pathos of the character and how he played him. Oh, they always say in these superhero movies, the villains are the best parts, not the heroes, right? When you think of Batman, who thinks of Michael Keaton? You think of Jack Nicholson, right? Mm-hmm. So here, Peter Sarsgaard. I loved him in this movie. He was great. His line deliveries, he's like becoming this evil, deformed thing, and he's like wheezing, but he's also gleeful, and he's doing these little waves and things. He was great in this movie. I liked him from beginning to end, but when you see him, you just know visually and the way he portrays himself, he's kind of shifty and not to be trusted and kind of skeezy. The telegraphing of why he's bad is so obvious. The first scene is him eating sauerkraut from a jar, putting hot sauce on it, and playing with a computer. I mean, like, we get it. He's a nerd. He's an introvert. But to which I would say, isn't he your target demographic? Why are you ridiculing him? I mean, isn't this the guy we want to see overcome fear, overcome his daddy issues, and become something great? I just feel like to celebrate the douche that doesn't care about his life, it's wrong. It's wrong. And, and Sarsgaard is a better actor. He's more fun to watch here. It's the reason to return to Earth. I could have spent much more time watching him and his transformation. What I don't understand, and I'm, I'm sure you guys have picked up on it and can help me out, is why does he get infected? He's brought in for the alien autopsy, but there's another alien inside the alien or something? There was a bit of parallax inside Abensur. Because when Abensur got killed, he was shot? No, the embodiment of Parallax, which is this cloud. We're going to talk about another cloud bad guy in an upcoming Marvel review. <laughs> but this giant dust cloud, yeah, it attacked his spaceship and it got in there and was attacking. At one point, it does knock him. But it puts a hole in his chest, right? In his heart. Yeah. And it, like a bullet, it shot something into him? I think it was just pieces of him. One of the things in the comics you find out with Hal Jordan, so he actually gets infested by Parallax in the comics and becomes this evil guy that kills off the entire Green Lantern Corps and comes Parallax embodied. So I, I'm guessing he has the power to infest people. Can I just say they should have done that here? They should have killed the other 3599 Green Lanterns so that that way Hal Jordan was special at the end. I need to feel special, so I'm going to kill everyone else. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm saying Parallax should have killed them. But anyway, back to Parallax. You know what? I'm willing to go with it. I didn't have a huge problem with it. You know, in the comic, Hector Hammond, he doesn't have that connection to Parallax. He gets some kind of commutative disease when he's doing the autopsy from a fragment, a meteor that was in the ship. I, I like this explanation better. I just wish there'd been something where, like, he went in without gloves to get something and cut his finger, and that's how he got infected. Because he's reaching in with a gloved hand, there's a yellow flash, and now he's evil. It was very, very quick, and I agree, I needed more explanation here. And, you know, we eventually realized that when we learn all about Parallax, that he was originally one of these bulbous-headed immortals. So, therefore, by injecting himself into this guy, he's going to be turned into one of those as well. That's why his head bulges, right? 
He's starting to look like them. I think so. That's the explanation for the movie. <laughs> well, why is his head bulging then? I mean, why is he... Because that's how the character is in the comic. <laughs> he gets infected by a space meteorite, gets this big bulbous head. I Again, I like the movie explanation better. If That's why it's bulging, because now he could read mind, so it's just a physical transformation of his telepathic abilities. Yeah, I thought his brain was growing, honestly. You know, he had mental powers. But he does look like the Immortals. I mean, you can see that visually they have the same forehead. True. I just didn't put that together. Parallax is a fallen Immortal. So, okay. That, I guess, alleviates some of my confusion about, well, is he becoming Immortal? He's not. But, okay. When he finally gets killed in the picture, I was really confused. But, okay. So that's what's happening to him. And it's kind of fun. So, Hector Hammond, he gets abducted by some shadowy government men in black. And they put the bag over his head. And they take him to Obinser's dead body, which is in this secret government facility. And we get introduced to Amanda Waller. And do you guys have any impressions of her? Oh, I like Angela Bassett. I felt like she was the one that should have been cast as Storm. I said that in X-Men. It's She's tough. She's gritty. She's You took her character as tough and gritty in this film. Oh, we're talking about character? I didn't get much of a character in here. I honestly thought that she was playing the role that Sam Jackson plays in the Marvel Universe of being like the authority figure who kind of comes in and forms teams. And I got the sense that she was the head of some kind of bureaucratic men in black agent. But I don't really know what she was doing now. Because this is probably where I have my biggest fanboy moment. I, I, I like Amanda Waller. She's known as Amanda the Wall Waller. It's interesting that you got that she was like the Samuel Jackson of the DC Universe because... She is. She's the original Samuel Jackson because that came. The whole Samuel Jackson characterization came later, and I think it was based on Amanda Waller, who in the comics she's basically the last line of defense for humans against metahumans. That's what they call superheroes in the DC universe is metahumans. She has stared down Batman. She would have no problem, you know, grabbing Superman by the testicles and bringing him to his knees. She is tough. And this version of her, you know, she came off like the Oracle from the Matrix and she was going to bake Hector some cookies while he's doing the autopsy. She didn't come off tough at all. You know, the only other version I've seen in outside of the comics is in Smallville. I don't know if you guys ever watched that. I wasn't a huge fan. But the last couple of seasons, they started bringing in more of the DC Universe and they brought in Amanda Waller. Played by Pam Greer, which makes perfect sense. Like, if I'm going to think of a tough, older black woman, yes, Pam Greer makes sense. Angela Bassett here, she just comes off as too nice and too sweet. And I know it probably doesn't mean anything to you guys, but for Amanda Waller fans, uh, oh, it's awful. Well, I can understand that, but I can re also reassure you, if you ever watched any of Angela Bassett's other earlier work, I mean, her work in Strange Days, I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Love it. She's amazing in that movie, and very physical. I mean, her version of Tina Turner and what love got to do with it, she looked like She-Hulk. She looked like she could break Ike Turner in half. I mean, she was, she was amazingly muscular and powerful, and I feel like if this character were going to continue in any other DC movies, they probably would keep that going. She's a great choice, but you're right. Here, fully clothed, they didn't really push her physicality, but she can be an incredible physical presence. I wish they would have brought that into this film then. I honestly got nothing out of her. I wondered why she wasn't the one doing the autopsy when she said there were other reasons. I thought she knew it was dangerous and she was like performing an experiment on Hammond and he was picked to be this guinea pig or something. But mm. she, she kind of disappears from the film and I forgot all about her and I kind of thought it was a waste of Angela Bassett. But maybe they were setting up something for the sequel like Sam Jackson and Phantom Menace. She's totally 
a superfluous character here. And, and that's, again, why I said Sam Jackson, because Sam Jackson just kind of blows in and out of Iron Man. You know, he does a five-minute bit, and then I'm out. It feels like there's something being built there that's larger, and that her role in this movie, not important. Her role, maybe in a DC Universe world, going to be much bigger. I mean, let's call it out. DC is trying to play catch-up to Marvel. First of all, that opening logo at the beginning was such a rip-off of Marvel with the comic book pages. And they're talking about making a Justice League movie. The new Superman, this Green Lantern, whatever they do with Batman, I don't think Christopher Nolan will touch it. You no, know, they've already said it's going to be outside of Nolan's continuity. It's going to be a whole new version of Batman. Lame, but whatever. Yeah, so they want to make a Justice League movie to compete with Avengers. They see Marvel making it work. So yeah, they are definitely world building here. Mm-hmm. But this isn't her world. This isn't her movie. You know, not this time. At the end of the day, it, it, this is Hammond, and Hammond's the one we're supposed to pay attention to in all her scenes. As for Hammond, I liked... Tim Robbins. I was shocked to see him. I didn't know he was in this film. He's a senator. All I could think of was Bob Roberts. You were thinking Bob Roberts. I was thinking Howard the Duck. I'm like, oh, here we go. (laughs) We're getting back to it. I couldn't quite discern all of the little connections between the senator, the Air Force group, and Hector, because Hector and Hal meet each other at a party before they're both, like, supered out. They're just starting to get their powers, and they, like, know each other. And I'm like, that did not play well to me, is how did they know each other? Yeah, I I didn't get Tim Robbins' character at all. He's a senator that has connections to get his son, Hector, to do this alien autopsy, which you figure would be a big secret thing, and then he sees the robot airplanes fail, but oh, he changes his mind because they made him so they could fly up higher. Like, I don't know, he just seemed like a superfluous character here. Like, they needed him to move the plot forward. They needed a daddy complex to match Hal's, and Tim Robbins is only slightly more present in the story than Hal's dad. He's there, he's functional to be a bad guy. He's there basically to be the victim of Hammond's wrath when he finally achieves his full power at the party, celebrating that all of a sudden they're going with the defense contract. It's very abrupt, but all of a sudden they've decided that, yes, those planes that got shot down, we do want to build a whole fleet of them. And thank you, Hal, you're like a son to me for doing that. (laughs) That was very shocking. I honestly wondered if he'd gotten engaged to the girl, because they're like, you're a member of the family. I'm like, I thought maybe Hector and lively were siblings i I just was really trying to suss all that out carol is the daughter of the owner of ferris aircraft industries so she's going to be the ones overseeing the making of the planes hammond is just the senator of the state that wanted the business for his state so that's why he's invested in that company he thinks it will be good for the economy but there is no connection at least above the table, that I could see between him and the Air Force company, right? Yeah, I mean, he was there at the beginning with the testing, so he's the senator who's buying the defense contracts, but that's the only thing. So how he knows Hal so buddy-buddy, well, he's a senator, maybe he's just faking, but yeah, Hector and Hal, I would have perverted if, like, they had grown up together or something, and maybe they did, and it just was implied or cut or something. Yeah, it's definitely not expertly set up. But all of a sudden, we're in a love triangle where both guys like Carol, and she's supposed to be important to the plot now. 
Why do either of the guys like Carol? I don't like Carol. Should I know who Blake Lively is? <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> she put out some sex tape thing a couple of weeks ago. Oh, well, then I would like to know who Blake Lively is. <laughs> I, I just know she's from Gossip Girl. I don't know what Gossip Girl is, but that's what everyone said. She's from Gossip Girl. Sister of the Traveling Pants, guys. We need to do that retrospective. <laughs> Haven't seen that one. I know there's two of them. Maybe there's a retrospective view, yeah, but... I'm hoping for the trilogy. Once they get the trilogy going, we are definitely doing that, guys. Oh, oh boy. Marjorie will be on that instead of me. How about that? She loves those movies. But I had no <laughs> clue who Blake Lively was. I'd heard the name. She does not fit in this movie. I did not buy the romance with Hal at all. She is no Gwyneth. I agree. <laughs> I Yes. If, if she's supposed to be an actress, I'm not interested in her in any movie or television show. I was. <laughs> she was just so bland. I was just bored with her. I, I don't know if she's supposed to be sexy. She looked like a stick to me. The, the, no sex appeal, nothing there. I'll tell you this much. The one thing I liked about what her character does in the movie is she articulates best what I think about Hal. Because when he whisks her away from the helicopter crash, and later they're on the apartment ledge talking about it, and he's confessed to her that who he is or whatever, she says... Basically, you know what? You're really overprivileged. Everything comes to you so easily. Here you are, a guy that has a job, wrecking planes and keeping it, and then you're, from that, promoted up to being a space cop, and you've quit that, and it's like, you walk away from everything, and it's just so handed to you. And I'm like, that's exactly right. That's why I don't like Hal, is that everything has come to him without any effort expended by him, and he doesn't even appreciate it. Well, yeah, Stuart, you just said what Arnie said. She's supposed to play Gwyneth Paltrow in this film and be the humanizing factor to the spoiled rich kid. You're right. And an equal, too. I mean, by making her a jet fighter, they're trying to take her out of maybe a more servile role of just being the girl. They want her to be tough, and she participates in the climax at the end. But it's a confused role. I don't know Blake Lively, and I've never seen her in anything, including Traveling Pants. (laughs) So I just felt that she was struggling to do something with a role that was nothing. Well, Stuart, you said with X-Men First Class, you didn't buy that January Jones was as smart as Emma Frost was supposed to be. That's how I felt about yeah. Blake Lively here. There's no way this woman is a jet pilot and running this major air company. Like, I just didn't buy the care. It's a miscasting. She was running it? I thought her dad was running it. Yeah, but she was taking it over for her father. They said she was going to be the one taking it over, and she's the one that convinced the senator to get the contract. Like, I just didn't buy any of this. Oh, I didn't. Okay, yeah. A lot was said about her, but you're right. It's She's not credible as a brassy... Conglomerate corporate mogul. Yeah, you needed Jolie. Jolie is in that rare category of women that you believe could actually hurt you, but at the same time can be humanizing and personable and altruistic. She has to be both, and Lively is neither. But that said, I I attribute a lot of that to the writing. Agreed. I think the actress could have been acceptable in the role, but it's all so quick and so glossed over that at times I'd forget there was a girl. And in the end, she becomes this typical damsel in distress, yada yada, blah blah. Yeah, it's like so much of this, just by the numbers, this is what a superhero is supposed to be, right? He's got to have a girl, she's got to be this way, moving on. 
Again, the only scene I really liked is when he comes to her after saving her at the party. And first of all, they totally Queen Amidala his voice at that scene, didn't they? Where, like, they modulated it down. I thought they were trying to do the whole Christian Bale, Dark Knight. Oh, I'm, I'm the Dark Knight. You know, I thought they were kind of parroting that. I, I like that. Yeah, but that's Christian Bale affecting a bad voice versus, like, in Phantom Menace, they digitally deepened Natalie Portman's voice for Amidala. This felt so just fakey, but I'm so glad that they called it out. I thought that he was going to have a secret identity and his girlfriend wouldn't know and it would be the Clark Kent thing, and I'm like, oh, this is so dumb. He's got the same hair, he's got everything the same, it's just a small little Zorro mask, how do they not know? So I'm so glad they called it out there. That was the only scene I enjoyed with her. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm glad they didn't play up that awful CGI mask was supposed to hide his identity. At least, Christopher Reeve, I buy it. His body language is different between Clark and Superman. He's got the curly cue, the glasses are off. Like, even though it's such an insignificant change, his the actor sells it. Ryan Reynolds ain't doing that. His hairdresser ain't doing it. Hair staying the same. Facial expression staying the same. Except there's some green paint around his eyes now. Mm-hmm. I, I gotta say, though, let, let's take a step back to where he does save her. You know, Hector Hammond, he uses his psychic abilities to cause his father's helicopter to crash. He shoot. He makes the beer cast yes. blow up and shoot something at the helicopter. Let's call it what it is. He shoots beer keg taps <laughs> at him. Dumb. Here's one thing that I, I was really worried about going into this film. And again, it was because of the marketing, because of the toys. Everything was about this damn Green Lantern Gatling gun. Which, if you have the ability to create anything out of your imagination, like, a gun is the lamest thing. I have that problem overall with his every creation in this movie. From a spring, to a gun, to a missile, to a jet, you can create anything, and it's all so boring. Well, I gotta say, though, I, you know, that made sense. When he was training, you're learning about your powers, you're gonna go for the obvious... I smiled at this scene. You know, the plane goes to crash, and what does he do? He creates like, this weird hot rod cradle thing that catches it and uses this, you know, Hot Wheels plastic racetrack to zoom it around. the Like, that, at least, it's juvenile. I get it. They're trying to sell some toys there. They're appealing to the little kids. But I liked that it wasn't something that was blatantly obvious. They showed at least a little bit of imagination here where that's been lacking so much in this film. Well, the problem is, is that you've given uh, the power of imagination to a character that does doesn't really have big thoughts. Yes, he saw Hot Wheels racetrack in his 11-year-old nephew's son <laughs> earlier in the film. But what? Yeah. I, I get what you're saying, Stuart. I'm just glad that it wasn't all guns and swords and, and weapons. Yeah, but it mostly was. <laughs> it mostly actually was. He was mostly referencing things that are already currently employed in combat. And it also shot green lasers. The whole ring power thing, going into it, I was skeptical about, okay, you can make anything. That just seems too much, right? It, there's, there's no limits to it. Well, no, there is a limit. It's all based on your will. You have to have the willpower. And that's why fear is the antithesis, because it takes away your will. It depowers you. There is so much New Age mumbo-jumbo about hate versus will and yellow versus green. Yes. It goes on and on and on. I mean, yeah, they got the other Green Lantern making some weird art sculpture in space, and Ryan Reynolds is making jets and missiles. It's like, I don't know, it just doesn't entirely work on me. 
You get what you pay for if you grab the nearest jarhead and say, hey, you're going to be the savior of this quadrant of the universe. This is what he's going to come up with. What was more curious to me was that at the same time that all of this is going on, Sinestro has decided the only way to really combat this is to drop color entirely. He is waving the green flag and now is going to turn everyone yellow. What I don't understand is why the Guardians of the Galaxy go with this. Because they're afraid. Right. But they go into Parallax's backstory and that's what happened when they try to harness the yellow power. But no, we're good. We'll try it one more time. It was disastrous the first time. It's going to threaten the entire universe. But why not? Why don't we try it one more time to see if it works out? I think last time, though, the guy just went into the yellow energy. This time they were going to try to narrow it down to a ring. Like, the ring could then be taken off and controlled. But they were dropping suits like he wasn't going to be green anymore. Yeah, I mean, they show it at the end. He turns yellow. A changing of the guard. That's kind of big. Like, you spend your whole time chanting green, 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 and no, yellow. What was the thinking there? Was there thinking there? Here's the problem with this film. Is, again, it doesn't know if it wants to be a kid's film, and so far it's playing like a kid's film, but it also wants to appeal to adults, too. If you're going to do a movie about fear, like, right now is a really good climate with, you know, post 9-11, all that kind of stuff. If you want to tell this story about, you know, fear and how it cripples you and how it turns you evil and how fear is no good and you got to get rid of that. There's a great story you could tell there. They do the kids version of that, where there, there's no relevance here. It's just, oh, yellow's actually stronger than fear is stronger than will. You know, uh, okay, so we're just going to go with the Bush administration here or whatever. They already made that movie. It was Batman Begins. It was an excellent parable about a fear-based culture. This is not going to be able to emulate that here. I mean, what it really does, it, it allows how to be the special one. Arnie, you keep telling, why can't he be the one? Well, here he's telling everyone else that they're wrong in the head because once you give in to fear you can't come back that's what he tells sinestro about his plan to make a yellow ring which is neither true nor applicable to his own life i want to add actually that whole scene bothers me because i don't understand he goes to the guardians and he's like we are worth saving is this after he's quit like three times <laughs> but then the guardians say no we won't help you and he goes but i don't need your help let me fight well, you could have just fought without going to Oa, couldn't you? I mean, really? Arnie, th this is a problem throughout the dialogue of this film. I noticed this, these weird jumps. You know, there's the one scene where Hal Jordan, he's demonstrating the new suit to his friend and, you know, he, where he throws his arms out and his friend just goes, well, isn't the hero supposed to get the girl? And then we jump to Blake Lively, like... That's not natural dialogue. Like, none of the dialogue here flows naturally. Like it's It felt like something was cut here. When I said earlier I'd get to something else, this whole thing of him giving his big impassioned speech, it felt like there was something else cut there. Like, they had taken away his powers from him because he'd quit, and then he was asking for them back or something. That said, if you gave him another 40 minutes to try and articulate what he's trying to say, it would never work. This is a garbled attempt to create a life lesson. The script Screenwriters won't let it die. The editors are right to just cut down to the quick and say, okay, he says this and moving on. Because forget it. This is a movie about picking your favorite crayon and watching them fight. This is not a movie where you extract life lessons about being fear or being brave. It's not working. So let's just cut it down. Let's get to a climax. Let's have something blow up. Because I got to say, the action in this is sparse and boring. And I can't believe I'm the one advocating this. But we needed less character and more action. 
Really? I'm right there with you, sir. I said I could have gone with a Speed Racer version of Green Lantern, where it was colors and CGI and an ADD pace of just craziness. Right. I don't get that here. They try to put character moments in here, and they're awful. I don't want it. Yeah, forget it. They're not working, and you just move on and, and just give me some, give me a spectacle. I, I'm going to stand alone, because I thought that this movie had a fairly decent balance between action and character. And while the character moments aren't entirely working, not every note is hitting, enough of them are hitting for me. I am interested in Sinestro and the yellow ring thing. And they don't spend a whole lot of time on it, but I'm like, is he going to turn evil? I thought at the end of the movie, he would turn evil. I am interested in Parallax coming to Earth. I'm interested in Hector Hammond. It's basically only when Blake Lively's around that I get kind of drawn out. And there's action sparse throughout. It's sparse action sparse throughout. <laughs> Yeah, sparsely populated action that is neither exciting nor even visually believable. The helicopter scene was action, just not great action. Really, a lot of the action comes from Hector Hammond. I mean, really, he gets... At the end, yes. Most of this time, he's just moaning in a bed with a headache. (laughs) It's really, the conflict doesn't get going until it's with the girl in the middle, and he's got her and is going to inject her with yellow juice, and or when he Flambe's is dead. I feel like those moments are coming way too late in this movie. That should be happening 40, 45 minutes into this movie, and they're coming right at the climax. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I mean, this movie just doesn't gel. It doesn't follow movie logic. It's just a mess of a movie. I don't even understand. Do you remember this scene? They're going to, like, Tim Robbins is going to turn his son back or something. They're trying to save him. They're sedating. They're going to do an operation, and... All of a sudden, Green Lantern burst in. Like, how did he even know this was going on or where to go or anything? Hal is sitting alone, and he's trying to decide what to do, and the ring starts to pulsate. And the ring pulsates when there's trouble. So the ring led him there. It's like a pager. And so Hammond uses his powers to, he starts busting up the lab and throws Angela Bassett around and throws Tim Robbins around and some bad CGI robot arms. But how did he know about the lab? He's never been there. He's never met Angela Bassett. The ring led him there, just like the ring could take him to Oa and find the right wormhole to pull him through. Oh, wow. It doesn't explain this. This is what I'm assuming. All right, you understand, Arnie. You understand that's the opposite of what you're saying. That is the opposite of good, tight story construction. I just meant the overall structure, but yeah, this was a bit- It's efficient storytelling, which doesn't mean it's good. That is a failure. That's an F. <laughs> you would give that paper an F. You Not even a D. That's an F. I say D, but... God. And I play the Brock role and say E for efficient. <laughs> right in between that D and F. <laughs> It is efficient. I agree. And because if you can't tell a good story, <laughs> at least tell it quickly. And that's what they're doing. They're just whipping through this. You're not rewarded for asking any questions about how or why. All of a sudden, we're finally in a fight scene. Thank God. I have to disagree. I am going to take a stand and disagree. I think that we got enough. The ring is obviously magical and can take him wherever. So how he got there, the ring did bleep because I had the same question. I had to kind of rewind in my memory. The ring told him there's trouble. Go fix it. And that's why Green Lantern shows up. Which is odd because I mean, just trying to think of how this ring works. He covers an entire sector. Right. Like, so this is the only crime going on in his sector is in this secret lab where his like, I get that that's why he finds the lab, but it's stupid. 
I was wondering what the threshold for the ring alert was, and... Well, he covers a whole sector. I hope 911 ain't a joke when it comes to the Green Lantern and his entire sector, and it's only who he's closest to. <laughs> and they say that, you know, the ring is a universal translator, because I had a problem with all these aliens speaking English. But fortunately, the ring's a universal translator, the ring's a knowledge base. So I guess the ring is also Google Maps. <laughs> <sighs> and I, I'm, I'm just seething as I think about it. But fortunately, when you're watching the movie, you're not really given time to think about it. It's just going forward. And all of a sudden, Parallax is back in this movie as well. What is his plan? To suck yellow energy or... (laughs) Yeah, he's been sucking out yellow skeletons out of people, eating their fear, and that gives him more power. And he comes up with a theory that if he eats Earth, he can go and eat Oa and all the Guardians. Well, he wants revenge for being imprisoned. Is there a nutrition chart someone could show (laughs) me as to, like... Amount of fear you eat relative to ability to eat a guardian? Well, if you're based on fear, I would guess eating more fear would increase your powers. They said he was growing larger and stronger the more he eats. But why Earth and why only Earth? I mean, it's just very convenient, right? Like, are we the most fearful planet in the universe? It's because Hal Jordan has Aben Sur's ring, and Aben Sur is the one who originally imprisoned him. So it's a personal vendetta. Okay, because not only does he come to eat Earth, but he comes to the city in which Hal lives in, which I would start in New York or L.A. Well, he hones in on the ring. It's very Lord of the Rings, the Eye Ah, of Sauron's, looking for that ring. It's like a tracking device. I thought he was coming for Hammond, because Hammond was part of him. No, he specifically says, that's the ring of the one who imprisoned me. I'm still going to take it out on him by eating your planet now. And how does he know it's there? Because there's some kind of psychic link between Hammond and Parallax. Just stop. Moving on. I mean, you see it. (laughs) Parallax screams in pain. There's lots of plot contrivances to explain it. Yeah, I'm so tired of mystical explanations for what this story can't do. But it's a magical story. That's like going to Lord of the Rings and going, I'm tired of this fairy crap. But, uh, Artie, this is supposed to be more science-based. I need cause and effect. I need something to happen because somebody does something, not because magical props say it's time. Here's the biggest problem with Parallax coming to Earth. He just starts eating people. Wouldn't it make more sense if we've established through Hector that there's some type of telepathic, psychic abilities, you could read people's mind and it increases your paranoia? Like, don't you use that power to turn all the Earthlings against each other? That's Batman Begins, Jacob. I know, but it makes more sense. That was the good movie about this. I would say go watch Batman Begins. But that makes sense. That worked. Like, increase everyone's fear. So, you know, it's like putting the yeast in the dough. So it rises. You want the fear to rise. You want it to increase. That would make more sense than just sucking everyone's yellow skeleton out of them. All I got to say is, I mean, you call this, what's the name of the city? Coast City. Coast City. To me, I knew they shot the movie down in New Orleans. I just couldn't help feeling bad for New Orleans. I'm like, really? Haven't these people suffered enough? Katrina, an oil spill, and now they got to deal with giant yellow dreadlocks from space. I mean, <laughs> come on, give them a break. I had the same thought, actually, because I've been to New Orleans. I recognized some of the landmarks. I was like, wow, this is not good to see all the people running in fear from a giant tidal wave of black. <laughs> I don't want to see this city suffer anymore at all. Well, 
Ryan Reynolds finally decides he's going to sacrifice himself and flies up into space. He doesn't know what his plan is, but I do because Kilowog said it halfway yes. through the film. Yes, it was so telegraphed it. I know we talk a lot in Now Playing about how this was set up earlier and pays off at the end, but this was so ham-fisted. It's like Kilowog wrote it. Yeah, I mean, it would be good writing if we hadn't seen it coming or we enjoyed it even though we knew it was coming, but it is just so obvious that we've been waiting for him to get to the sun. I mean, that it's just, yeah, it's just there. It deflates any tension we might have with Ryan Reynolds fighting the dirt clod. We know that it's going to go to the sun. And again, he's rewarded for coming up with a plan that's actually the wrong thing to do. I mean, it, yes, it got him out of this circumstance, but he wasn't supposed to fly that high. I mean, I thought that was the lesson there. But he was sacrificing himself, theoretically. He was risking himself, much like the first one. He thought he could pull out, whereas Parallax couldn't. But comparing it to the Jets, he never should have done that, right? Like, that was a wrong thing for him to do, and he did it again. But he didn't ever think it was wrong. It's just other people told him he was... Exactly! That's exactly my point! He's like Icarus. He's flying too high to the sun. And Icarus died for that, but not Green Lantern, not Hal. (laughs) We like this jerk. He's great. Here's the problem for me is, this is supposed to be the most dangerous being in the universe. It's going to destroy the Guardians, but one rookie, one poser Green Lantern is able to defeat him. Isn't this the moment where they all, the Green Lanterns decide that they do need to unite, overcome their specious feelings, and step in for Earth, that this Earthling has proved his moment, they all combine to defeat the great evil? Like, it's not satisfying that this rookie cop is able to kill the bad guy when the bad guy is supposed to be undefeatable. I disagree. I think Hal needed something to prove it himself. I mean, I think that's classical storytelling. Shouldn't he have learned that he needs to get along and be a team player? You just said there's a problem at the end. I think the team needed to do something. If you introduce all these other space cops, the fact that they watch him defeat the thing and then pull him back is not enough. But... I do think it has to be Hal to be the savior, because he's the one that has to prove he's worth his ring. But the ending is so bad, that it doesn't even matter. I I, I gotta ask, just because there's all this color theory being thrown around, is the sun bad because it's yellow? (laughs) The sun's afraid. Well, no, it it actually should hurt Hal. Uh, There was a story in the comics with Tamar Ray, where he was actually supposed to save Krypton from blowing up, but a yellow ray of the sun hit him and disable them because they're weak to yellow. The color, literally the color yellow. It's not just fear that weakens them. It's the literal color yellow could weaken them. This is like Brian Singer Superman being able to lift a continent with a big piece of kryptonite in him. Whatever. Anyway, it's all over very, very quickly after that. I don't even remember the final scenes. It's just like, bam, 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 and it's over. Well, he he has a couple scenes with Blake Lively where they obviously are boyfriend and girlfriend now. And yes, he's overcome his fear of dating her, of saying that he was afraid. Yeah, I he he was. I think he was afraid of commitment, and so he's now in a committed relationship with her. Although he didn't give her a ring, <laughs> yeah. so whatever. Anyway, it's all over, and the only thing I process now is a sequence that comes. Just after half of the credits are over, Sinestro. Oh, Arnie, you said you knew who Sinestro is. 
Stuart, did you get what the whole point of this was? Well, when I saw the previews, I assumed this was the bad guy. Because anybody that's red-faced with a widow's peak and a mustache has to be the bad guy. And named Sinestro. <laughs> Especially such a Vincent Price mustache. <laughs> exactly. He did look like a big Vincent Price alien. And so, yes, I knew he had to be bad. And then when they talked about a yellow ring, I seem to remember in Super Friends, that was something that Green Lantern fought, right? It was green versus yellow ring. But... When it didn't happen, uh, you know, there was enough else going on that I didn't really give it any consideration. But in the end, I I guess I don't quite understand. Did the ring choose him? Is that what happened? It busted out? No, he he was just putting it on. I think he wanted the power. No, no, he didn't put it on. The thing broke out of a glass. I thought he used green willpower to rip it out of the glass and take it. My problem with this ending scene is that, as my wife will attest to, she didn't get what was going on. Because the audience, I said, a whole lot of fans in this audience, I thought I was in Hall H at Comic-Con. This got the biggest reaction out of the audience. People were screaming and yelling and cheering to see Sinestro turn yellow, put on his other invisible power yellow suit. And for me, trying to think of this as a story thing, it wasn't satisfying. Yes, he wanted the yellow ring, but Green ended up winning at the end of the day. Why does he still want the yellow ring? Like, you're still going to have to, hopefully, if they do a part two, they explain why he decides to still embrace the yellow power when we saw that one poozer human was able to defeat it. So for me, just storytelling, it wasn't a satisfying reveal for the hardcore fans. They loved it. They went crazy for that scene. I was happy for it. I kind of liked that character. I was liking what the actor was doing with the performance. I would have preferred him be the villain in this film. I liked Peter Sarsgaard, but Mark Strong, of course, we all loved him in Kick-Ass. And yeah, it made me think I'd like to see that sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Alone, without me reviewing it. Stuart, what about the 3D? You said we both saw it in 3D. Did it add anything? I forgot it was in 3D half the time. I thought the 3D sucked, this post-conversion shit. This is the first 3D movie I've seen since Avatar, and what a difference, I gotta say. I'm not big on 3D in general. It doesn't suck me in. If there's a 2D version and the movie wasn't filmed with 3D cameras, then I will go see the 2D. And I would have preferred to see the 2D version of this because 3D prices are more expensive. And yeah, other than the yellow ring coming out or a few touches... It's almost unnoticeable. It felt like a pop-up book to me at times. Like, everything was so layered in different ways. It felt like somebody cut and pasted somebody closer to me, and it was terrible 3D. I was Well, that's what they have to do. That's actually more or less the technology they have to do when it's shot in 2D, is that they have to cut it out and stick it over another image. It's about Viewmaster layering. It's not impressive. I, I would say, if anyone is still wanting to see this after this podcast... <laughs> I think you're fine sticking with 2D. You really don't need 3D. Absolutely. And I, 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 again, I forgot it was in 3D. And when it did call itself out to me, it was in bad ways. Like, ooh, a lamp is closer to me. I I was wondering if in 3D, because I saw this in 2D and I said the CGI was not as bad as I expected it to be. I was wondering if in 3D with all the CGI suits, if like it would look like heads were literally floating around or something. No, it didn't ever look like that. It It wasn't pronounced enough to really have that kind of impression. It barely felt... 3D. It, it's like reading a book with the letters bolded. It's like they're a little bit more noticeable, but it doesn't make the story any better. It doesn't make anything pop out any better. It just, it does nothing. Here's the thing is, it was shot actually, I thought the cinematography was very well done, but with 3D, in order to make it work, you've got to have a large depth of field. Everything needs to be in focus, and then you're looking at different things because of how close they are to you, 
And this cinematographer did a lot of focus shifts and things where the 3D just wasn't able to work. When there were characters closer or further away, only one was in focus. And so you can't really 3D that. And so I actually took my glasses off a couple times and didn't notice a difference. Well, then, I guess, Stuart, you can have your final thought. As I say, do you recommend Green Lantern? (laughs) Look, we got Green Lanterns and Yellow Lanterns. I am Red Lantern. (laughs) Stop. No more. There actually is Red Lanterns, and they have rage. That's their power. Yeah, yeah, okay, I'm I'm with them. I'm putting that ring on. You got to stop this bullshit. (laughs) This has got to stop. There is no story here. There is no world we want to escape here. This is a very rote, boring fantasy. The whole point of a fantasy is that you'd actually want to project yourself into that world. The prospect of being Ryan Reynolds in this film is only slightly more appealing than being Ryan Reynolds in Buried. I mean, I don't want to fly in outer space with a warthog and a fish with magical jewelry fighting the color yellow. That's dumb. This movie is dumb. It screams dumb. And my biggest anger and my biggest complaint about it, it's not even dumb enough to be bad good. I didn't even have a good time mocking it. I went into this theater with a couple drinks, hoping that I was going to get some chuckles. I didn't laugh once. It's just a sad, pathetic, limp film where absolutely everyone does their job and nobody likes their job. Not recommend. Jacob. You know, my biggest problem with this film is that it never engaged me. I said this throughout the podcast. If this was Speed Racer and it was just wild and crazy and fun, I could have gone with it. But it's such an unbalanced film. I I wish there was more of the space stuff and it was bigger and they tied into Earth. But the way they do this, nothing seems to ever get into a cohesive hole for me here. And that's the biggest problem. You know, we're going to be reviewing some movies, upcoming movies, the Marvel retrospective that a lot of people don't consider good, but they still have their moments when I'm engaged, I'm excited. This film, I don't have a problem doing Green Lantern as a Christopher Reeve, 1970s Superman the movie. That's a film that works for kids, but it also engages you as an adult. There's the character moments. You know, I remember coming out of Superman, anyone that saw that as a kid, what do you do? You go home, you grab a towel, tie it around you, and you run around flying. I don't see eight-year-old kids doing that when they see this film. You know, there's nothing magical about it. I guess what you were saying, Stuart, the fantasy elements, they're not there. It's not magical enough. It's not satisfying for an adult that's interested in storytelling. I got to say, the the most positive thing I could say about this film comes directly after the credits. They actually threw up an advertisement for comic books. For once, a comic book film actually told the audience that there are comic books that you could buy and read if you enjoyed this film. The problem is, I don't know how many people are going to enjoy this film and go and seek out those comic books. So, I don't think this movie has deserved a lot of the hate that it's been receiving, but it's a mediocre film like I think a lot of superhero and action films are. It's mediocre, uh, but it didn't engage me, so not recommended. And I went into this, and I've said on several of the podcasts with the vote that I thought Green Lantern could be really good, Iron Man good, in which case I would want to have reviewed it. Or I thought it could be really bad, Howard the Duck bad, in which case I would want to review it. (laughs) But when I was watching it, I realized I was dead wrong. It could be mediocre. (laughs) And that's what it was. It was neither really good nor really bad. It was entirely pedestrian. It had certain aspects I like, certain performances I like. And again, the story wasn't so bad that it bothered me. When I said it was tight, I'm saying it didn't bother me. I couldn't poke holes in the fact that it's, oh, such a convenient coincidence that all this is going on. It all 
had a logical falling of dominoes flow. But yes, it was rote. Every single aspect of it was a story I'd seen a hundred times before, from Top Gun to Superman to Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer, even with a giant cloud trying to eat Earth. We'll get there, Stuart. Just hang on. So... It puts me in that really weird spot of, is it a recommend or not recommend when the movie is basically a C? You know, when it's average, do you recommend it or not recommend it? And, you know, it's splitting a hair here, but the performances were enough and the jokes were enough. The audience was laughing and having a good time and I was kind of going along with the ride. So that I'm going to give this the faintest possible recommend. This is just like your review of Terminator Salvation, Arnie. This is just like when you were like, I didn't really like any of it, but it wasn't bad, so I'm going to recommend it. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. It's when it's not bad and it's not good. When it's not good, you don't recommend it. And this movie is not good. You can say it's not terrible. You can say that it's merely bad or mediocre, but nothing is good. And if it's not good... You don't tell someone to go see it. I'm going to defend Arnie. There was moments when he was engaged in the film. If I ever felt engaged in this film, I could have given it a faint recommend. It never engaged me, though. I was Mm -hmm. never into it. Arnie was engaged, it sounds like. Yeah, I was having fun at parts. The whole film didn't work for me, but it was an entertaining diversion. Walking out, I did not feel like I'd wasted my time or wasted my money. I felt like there were many worse ways to spend that evening. That's why I'm recommending it. It was mildly amusing. You could do far, far worse, so it gets a mild recommend. Wow. And I would be looking forward to a sequel. I would. The Sinestro thing, I don't think it's going to get a sequel. Superhero movies this summer haven't been doing all that well at the box office. Green Lantern's the third. I think superhero fatigue may be setting in. Well, let me put it this way. The midnight crowd of tough dudes in Green Lantern shirts all walked out, and I watched their reactions, and they all were like, yeah, that was pretty good. I'm sorry, but a midnight crowd of people that bought the shirt saying it's pretty good is not a hit. I had more of a mixed reaction. There was definitely people just going insanely crazy for it. There were some that, oh, yeah, it was all right. I mean, from what I saw, it satisfied the comic crowd. But that problem is that's a very small portion of the box office audience. Well, to conclude my final thought, one of my biggest problems is I think Green Lantern's a stupid character. And this movie did nothing to change my mind on that. I think his powers are silly. I think his origin is silly. You said, Jacob, at the end, it said, go read a comic book. I ain't reading this comic book. This movie did nothing to make me think, hmm, I want to see further exploration of Green Lantern. But I recommend it and want to see a sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing how we can agree and then all of a sudden it's like, you're on the other side of the universe. Well, the ring led me there, obviously. But I would like to see the sequel more because of the Sinestro performance than anything. I want to see Sinestro go evil in yellow. Well, you know what I want to see more of? I want to see more movies with heart and characters that I care about. I want to see more Super 8s, because I went and saw that movie. It's a damn shame that we didn't end up doing that podcast. I'm just going to leave it there. It's uh, We gave people what they want, and I, I'm happy to do it, but Super 8 would have been a better show. Like I said, I didn't even get my jollies off ripping it apart. It's just a limp, limp thing. Stuart, I'm right there with you. Super 8, I went and Saw it opening weekend. Great film. Recommended. A lot of heart. I don't know how much I would have to say about it, except, hey, watch that if you want to see what good filmmaking is. I, I think now playing's <laughs> gig is it's more fun when movies aren't the greatest. And I think I would have enjoyed talking more about Green Lantern. And I've enjoyed having this discussion more than Super 8, which had been, I, I think, of a lot of us sitting around saying, yeah, that was a really good scene. Yeah, that really was a good performance. <laughs> 
that must be why we're reviewing Transformers 2 on Tuesday. Yeah, you got to admit, Stuart, stand with me on this. This is better than either of the last two <laughs> movies we've seen for now playing, Transformers by Michael Bay or Transformers 86. I actually think Bayformers is a more visually remarkable movie and thus wins the argument out of that. I enjoyed watching the robots beat each other much more than I watched Ryan Reynolds in a video game. And I enjoyed Ryan Reynolds with his green avatars more than I enjoyed robots I couldn't tell apart. Well, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Stewart, you and I will be back next week for Transformers 2. Maybe you'll agree with me that Green Lantern's better than that from my memory. We'll see you. And then, Jacob, you will be rejoining us on the other side of Transformers as our Terrific Three reviews Fantastic Four. Looking forward to a Roger Corbin film? (laughs) (laughs) So, guys, we're doing the Marvel retrospective series. Does this mean we're doing a DC retrospective series? Stuart, you keep talking about how much you like Batman. There is a new Batman coming out next year. Oh, that's true. Uh, Every time I want to wash away the comic book things, I have to go back and say, if it's Christopher Nolan's involved, I want to do it. So yeah, I'm definitely up for Batman. I didn't say nothing about no DC series, but Batman Batman I can roll with, for sure. Uh, What about Superman? He's coming out. Yeah, Zack Snyder. Not a big fan of Zack Snyder. But, you know, I I hate getting into that nerds hate everything mentality. I'll wait for it to come out and see it. Look, I'm a big DC Universe fan. I love DC Comics. I love Batman. I want to do a Batman series. If we could fit it in, I want to do it because Batman is where my journey into the comic book world began. Well, it's hard because it's coming out like right at the same time as Avengers and Spider-Man and doing one a week. Batman's like, what, eight weeks, nine weeks. So we'll have to see. But yeah, I think our graphic designer, Chris, has put together a DC logo for us. And this is the first one he applied it to. So we'll see. We'll see. But it's next year's crowded, though. Really. Avengers, Spider-Man, Prometheus. I was just about to say, there's a little movie connected to something I've been wanting to do for a while. So we can finally get everyone, all our fans, to stop asking when the Aliens retrospective (laughs) is coming up on Facebook. You'd have an easier time prying a face hugger off me than getting me away from Prometheus. I'm going to do that series then. All right, well, we'll have to see where we can fit Batman, but something for listeners to maybe look forward to if we can squeeze it in. But I don't know, does that mean we'd have to watch Catwoman again? I hope so. I love that movie. <laughs> I mean, if, if there's anything, if anyone loves Stuart just screaming about movies, Catwoman's <laughs> a must-do. And I have seen it, and it is special. Yeah. We will get Vintage Stewart out of Catwoman. <laughs> so we will be back on our Totally Free Tuesdays next week. Talk to you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. We have never been defeated. Will we be defeated now? Remember to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each Tuesday in June as we review another Transformers film leading up to the weekend of release review of this summer's Transformers Dark of the Moon. The one thing that a green lantern is supposed to be is fearless. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films, such as Terminator, X-Men, Star Trek, Predator, and many more. 
as well as individual movie reviews such as Avatar, Inception, Howard the Duck, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Green Lantern can do anything. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss our movie reviews with other listeners. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. To be chosen to join its ranks is the highest of honors and the greatest of responsibilities. Yeah, get that part out Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I, Hal Jordan, do solemnly swear to pledge allegiance to a lantern that I got from a dying purple alien. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. Infinity and beyond. Now Playing's Green Lantern Review is edited by Arnie. I'm uncomfortable with the word hero. Now Playing's credit narrations by Brock. All right, I can do that. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures or DC Comics. The Green Lantern is the property of DC Comics and no infringement is intended. Remember, your enemy is not going to play fair. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. By the power of Grayskull, what the hell?! Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. And he's honestly a squirrel. That's a Green Lantern. Wow. Is he an Earth squirrel? Because... Some alien. I'd like to know exactly how the ring picks anyone on the planet and it goes and brings back a squirrel. A dolphin I could see, but a squirrel, no way. Perhaps it's one of those talking ones like Alvin. (laughs) (laughs) But Abin is able to escape to Earth where he... May I call you Abin? (laughs) Hey guys, I'll be back in like 10 seconds. I gotta go to the bathroom. He's gonna pee in 10 seconds? Is he recording on the toilet? (laughs) A little pee. That's why I have the cup nearby. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't we already talk about that during the uh, the Aviator podcast, our college days of peeing in bottles? We did. You're right. This is is well-covered terrain now that I think of it. (laughs) Fused role. I'm not going to say I don't like Robin Lively. I don't know Robin Lively. I've never, despite my advocation. <laughs> Clearly, I, I'm not a big fan. I didn't even know her, her name.
in, in the comics. They didn't play it up at all in this film. The green lantern energy doesn't work on anything that's yellow because that's the color of fear. And there's this great, awful comic where uh, Batman and Robin are going to fight the green lantern and they lure him into a room that they've painted yellow and they painted their suits yellow and they're drinking yellow lemonade to totally depower him. It's like, <laughs> it's, and that's from Frank Miller, who people consider the greatest comic book writer ever. I'm going to be evil and turn Robin. I keep wanting to call her Robin Lively. Is there a Robin Lively? I think she was on Twin Peaks. Now that I think about it, uh, what's her name? Blake yeah, Robin Lively? Lively. She was also in Dream a Little Dream too. I forgot Jeez. all about it. Of course you go there, uh, Arnie. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't forget Karate Kid Three. And I think she was the love interest of Doogie Howser after Wanda left the show. Oh my. I, I could be wrong, but I think she was in Teen Witch with Zelda Rubenstein. But I need to stop. Um, <laughs> Blake Lively. I, you know, what was I saying? <laughs> Let's talk about Teen Witch. Oh!